you have your Bibles open to Titus chapter 2, it says in verse 11, Johnny, I'm going to read it if it's all right. It says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, Father, we open your word with great reverence. We ask now that you would be the teacher. Would you use Johnny as an instrument in your hand to open up our eyes, to open up our heart, to see the truth about who you are and who we are in light of who you are? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Al asked if we were going to be, is this on? Al asked if we were going to be uh, short enough to where we can have a family meeting at the end. And I said, yeah, we are working on making the sermon shorter. So I just lumped people in with me. So it wouldn't only be on me if the sermon went too long. So uh, we're, we're going to try to move quickly through the text this morning so that at the end of the service we can celebrate uh, some of what God's doing and approve our budget for next year. Uh, and we're looking forward to that. But first, Titus chapter two. Uh, Al read it for us. Thanks, Al. And you know, th- this is a, there's so many good truths in this passage. In some ways, this is a, a passage about uh, salvation, and you could preach a message just about salvation. In, in some ways, it's about sanctification in the Christian life, and you could preach a message from these same verses just focused on that. In, in other ways, it's about life after death and what we expect and hope when Christ comes. And you could preach a message just on that. There's a lot of different ways you could go with this one passage because of all the truth that's jam-packed here. But I think this morning we're gonna try to look at all of those and give you an overview so that you can go, if you read Titus 2, 11 to 14, and feel free to dive into any of these topics. The first point for this morning is we're gonna see that we are saved by Christ. Doesn't get much simpler than that. We are saved by Christ. In Titus 2, verse 11, it says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This word appeared actually comes up twice in this passage, and it's the word where we get our word epiphany. And it's this divine appearing, this divine intervention for the sake of helping. Um, A deity shows up to help his people. And so in this sense, we see that the way God shows up, it says the grace of God has appeared. Now, we're not just talking about the thing of grace. We're talking about the person. How has the grace of God appeared? In the person of Jesus. And when God's grace appeared in the person of Jesus, it brings salvation for us. Salvation for all people. Now, that means all kinds of people. The same kinds of people he talked about earlier in chapter 2. But as I was thinking about salvation, I, I, was, I, I just kept thinking, how do we apply this to our life? For me, salvation became such a religious term, I failed to see that we all seek salvation all the time. And so I wanted to pose the question to you this morning, what is salvation for you? Now, I'm not opening you up to be able to define God's salvation in any way you want. But I'm asking, what kind of salvation are you seeking in your life? What is it that you woke up this morning wanting to be saved from? What's the biggest problem in your life right now 
that you would love to be saved out of? What's the biggest worry you have? What's the biggest achievement that you're longing for or the thing you must have or do or maybe it's a person or a group of people that you really want to approve of you? Could be having a certain amount of money in the bank and salvation for you looks like financial freedom and flexibility. Maybe salvation for you is being able to maintain a certain lifestyle. We live in one of the wealthiest parts of a major city in the wealthiest country in the world. Let's not pretend like that's not uh, alluring for us to want to maintain a certain lifestyle, live in a certain kind of home, have certain kinds of things, drive certain kinds of cars, take certain kinds of trips and vacations, have certain kinds of gadgets. What is salvation for you this morning? What's the thing you want to be saved from? And then where do you look to bring you that salvation? What's the hole in your heart that you're constantly trying to fill. The thing that brings you the most anger and disappointment and sadness. And then what brings you that salvation that you're looking for? Where, where do you look for it? If you're looking for love and you want someone to approve of you and to like you, where are you going? Who are you laying that before saying, please, Please just like me. See, when we say that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, God's talking about a very specific kind of salvation. And we're going to talk about that in just a second, but I couldn't help but move beyond this passage without saying we're all, every human being is looking for salvation. Some of it's physical and surface level. Some of it is soul level. All of it, I would say, is soul level, and it comes out on the physical level of the things we want, the hole in our heart we're trying to search for. Augustine's famous quote I say all the time from 1,600 years ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Jumping from thing to thing and person to person, hoping this will be the one that brings me rest. This will be the one that brings me salvation. But what we see in Titus 2.11 is that we are only saved by Christ. Whatever you think you need to be saved from, here's what God says, that we are saved from our sin. What does that mean? It means we're saved from being without God. The worst thing about our lives is that we're separated from God. Now, if we're separated from God, God's the source of all creation, all good, all life, all blessing, and God saves us from that. And if he saves us from separation, that means he saves us to himself. And he brings you into relationship with the fountain of every blessing. He says, come to me and I love you. I'm gonna adopt you into my family. I'm gonna bring you close to me back into relationship. We're saved from our sin, that separation from God and our rebellion to him, but we're also saved from the consequences of our sin. Being separated from the source of life, another way to say that is death, dying. That's Genesis, right? The day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And then we say, what happened? They, Adam and Eve lived beyond that. How did they die? They died because they were separated from the source of life. Death is physical, but it's more than that. It's the daily death of life without God. So we're saved from our sin. We're saved from the consequences of our sin. We're saved from ourselves because the greatest problem is actually inside of us, not just outside of us. Go read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, and Romans 6, 
It talks about our salvation. So when we see in this verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, I hope that you ask, am I looking for this kind of salvation? What am I, how am I redefining salvation today? And am I willing to say, God, this is the great salvation that you have brought when Jesus showed up. But before you can be saved, we had this conversation this week with one of our kids, not just about being saved, but about receiving grace. Even in young kids, they have this thing where they don't want to admit they do something wrong. I say there's grace just on the other side of this. I will open my arms and I already love you. But you have to say that what you did was wrong. Mommy and I have all the grace ready to pour out on you and say we love you and we will move right along with our day. But you have to tell me you need the grace. Are you willing to admit that you need grace. Maybe a more scandalous way of saying that, and this is just the way God pressed this on my heart this week. Will you admit that you need intervention in your life? God's intervening grace that intercepts you as you are heading towards death and separation from God. Will you admit that you need that? Because the grace of God has shown up and it is ready to bring salvation for all kinds of people, even you. But this grace that shows up in Christ, we are saved by Christ, but we are also shaped for Christ. Look with me at verse 12, which by the way, 11 to 14 is one big sentence. Thank you, Paul. He does this all over. Grace is the primary point, but then you'll see these words ending in I-N-G. Training, that first word in verse 12, tells you what the grace does when it shows up. So we're saved by Christ, but we're also shaped for Christ because this grace that shows up in our life doesn't give us a license to live however we want. It shapes us for a particular purpose. That's what this word training is all about. Grace works. Grace works. And actually, all salvation works this way. Because like we said in point one, you're looking for some kind of salvation in your life and you're looking somewhere or someone to bring it to you. But all salvation works. All salvation shapes you because you will serve whatever saves you. You will serve whatever saves you. Wherever you seek salvation will shape your life. Here's what I mean. If the salvation you're longing for is horizontal acceptance from other human beings, you will be enslaved to other human beings. You will be forced to constantly ask, what do they think of me? Are my, on a superficial status, are my clothes right, am I dressed right? Am I using the right language? Oh God, I hope I don't get canceled today. Am I saying the thing that fits right within this group that I'm trying to fit into? You'll become slaves to the people that you want their acceptance. And all of a sudden, all of your decisions and all of your actions will be submitted to this group or this person that you say, I need you to like me. I need you to approve of me. And so you'll begin to serve the very thing that you think offers you salvation. You will serve whatever saves you. Oftentimes for us, it's hard to determine, like maybe you were thinking in our first point, I'm not quite sure what I'm looking for to save me. 
It, it can be hard to start there, but let me give you a, a popular biblical Christian counseling phrase that can help. Fruit to root. If you're not sure what it is that you're really worshiping to offer you salvation or the thing that you're looking for that's shaping your life, actually, instead of starting with that thing, instead of starting with the root, start with the fruit of your life. Start with your actions and then trace it down to the root. David Pallison, uh, I've quoted him before. He passed away a few years ago, but was a phenomenal biblical counselor, and he wrote a book called Seeing with New Eyes, and in that book, he has a list of 40 or 34 extremely helpful, what he called x-ray questions, questions that help you get to your heart. And I'm not going to read all 34, but here's some of them. What, what do you love? What do you want? What do you fear? What do you feel like doing? What do you think you need? What makes you tick? What do you trust? Whose performance matters to you? He's asking these questions to say, hey, these questions will be an x-ray for your soul. It'll help you go from the actions of your life to show you what are you looking for to save you? Because whatever brings you salvation is what you will serve. And if we have the salvation that God brings in verse 11, then we will be shaped by the same Christ that saves us. Now, what does that look like if we are shaped for Christ? I think this text shows us two things, that if our lives are saved by Christ, then we will look like this, godly and Godward. First, godly. He's talking about our character in the present age. Do you see what he says? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Age. There's two aspects in this passage, and we actually see these same two aspects show up again in verse 14, but the first one is things that we renounce. If you're familiar with other letters of Paul, he frequently talks about put off and put on. There's two sides to living this Christian life. Because you've been saved by Christ, Christ is now going to come in and train you and shape you to live like this, and here's the first step, renouncing certain things, renouncing Things that are not like him, ungodliness. Let's not make that word more religious than it is. Un, not godly, like God. He's gonna train you to renounce things that are not like the God who has saved us. And also worldly passions. And that word passions is not just, that's an interesting word because we don't use it the way that it actually means. We might say, I'm passionate about this. We think, yeah, you're fired up about it, but, but think about love. Worldly loves and lusts and desires that are not of God. So God's grace is gonna come in and shape us to renounce those things, but then it's also gonna shape us to positively live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you notice how many times self-controlled has come up in all of chapter two? You'll remember from last week. It's gonna shape us to love God and love others and pursue holiness because God is holy. So to be shaped for Christ only happens because we're saved by Christ. And the first aspect of that kind of shaping is a godly life, that your character and your actions are marked by godliness. But here's the second thing. It's God word. Do you see the beginning of verse 13? It's in the same context of grace appearing, training us for how to live training us to live godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live Godward lives when 
Christ saves you and shapes you, he shapes you to live Godward. That is, your life is pointed at God. Not just in that you glorify God in the things you do here, but in the fact that your hope lies beyond this world. I kept thinking this morning as I woke up just thinking about hope. What kind of hope do I have? And I realized I tend to swing between two very extreme pendulums. On the one hand, I will try to, in all my strength and power, I will try to make a heaven out of this earth. It was good for me to sing some of these songs this morning. Because I will do everything I can to make a heaven out of here and now. I mean, I, I think we all tend to probably do that because this is where we are. We want this moment and this place to be as good as possible. So I will swing over to this side. I will do everything I can to stake my whole joy and happiness and meaning and purpose on this place and this moment. I'll do everything I can to make a heaven out of the here and now. But then I'll swing to the other side after being dissatisfied here and realizing I can't make a heaven out of the here and now. And I'll swing all the way over here to a hopelessness that because my heaven can't be here and now, I, I struggle to even see a hope beyond the here and now. And I swing back and forth between those two pendulums, idolizing the things of this moment and this world, and then coming over here and being so deflated because those idols couldn't prop up my joy. That now over here, I'm hopeless and I'm deflated, but why? It's not because of the truth of the gospel. It's because those things let me down. But what does a life of hope look like? I've got news for you. You don't have to swing. I don't have to swing that pendulum. I don't have to go between heaven in the here and now and hopelessness. I can hope for Christ to appear again. And here's what a life of hope, I think, begins to look like. It means that we can have confidence that Christ is going to finish what he started. That Christ will unsettle all the brokenness, sin, and evil that has settled down into our world. He will upend the proud and the lifted up, and then he will exalt the humbled. He will renew what has been destroyed, and he will resurrect what has died. When we do what verse 13 says, and we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing, same word as verse 11, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we're waiting for Christ to come and make everything new. So we can live simultaneously with a joy in Christ, singing Christ is enough. And we can live with a real honesty that things are not as they should be. And that frees me to be able to admit when things hurt and when things are hard and when things are not as they should be. But I don't have to go all the way to hopelessness when I admit that things aren't as they should be because I know Christ will return his glory will appear again. And he's gonna make everything right again. C.S. Lewis said he's gonna make all the sad things come untrue. So what does a life of hope look like for us if we're shaped by Christ? It means that we acknowledge that today is not forever. Things aren't gonna stay like this, but we can have an expectation that in the future, justice will reign. Tears aren't my destiny and death is not my end. The ways that you experience sin and brokenness is not the end of your story. 
but we can live in hope. Hope is an exercise of our souls to teach us to long for a greater glory than this world can offer. And that's, you can't live like that without Christ. Without Christ, you have to find your ultimate glory in the here and now. You have to, because you're not sure what's beyond. But with Christ, you can be brutally honest about the here and now and have hope that he's gonna fix it. Because we're saved by Christ, we can be shaped by Christ to live godly and Godward lives. And then here's the last point. And we see this moving into verse 14, that we are serving in Christ. As our eyes are fixed on him, I mean, that's kind of the image that's painted in verse 13. We're looking to Christ, longing for him to return, knowing that when he returns, he is gonna fully and finally establish his good kingdom. And as our eyes are fixed on him, it's almost like Paul goes off to the side and says, we are waiting in hope, the, hope for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As our eyes are set on him, we are reminded of things about him. As we're looking to the future, longing for Christ to come back, we cannot but help think about the things that he did in the past. We remember what Christ has done. That's exactly what Paul says here. He gave himself in the past tense. We're reminded of his perfect work and sacrifice. Think about 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ was sinless, but God put the sin of the world on him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 9 talks about how he perfectly paid the penalty for sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. We remember what Christ has done. As we look in the future for him, we cannot help but think about what Christ has done in the past. He gave himself for us. And then as we look at him and we look at what he's done, we are reminded that our identity is in Christ. You are redeemed and purified and his. That's what verse 14 says. If you are in Christ, if you've experienced the salvation that verse 11 is talking about, then you are redeemed. You are purified. You do belong to God. You are redeemed. This speaks to winning someone, paying the price to free someone from slavery. You were enslaved. We were enslaved to sin, to rebellion. We needed to be saved from ourselves. And God intervened to free us from that. Christ paid the price for your freedom, and that's redemption. You're also purified to belong to him. You were dirty with sin and shame. But God didn't send you away to get cleaned up before you came. You come to Christ, and then God purifies and cleans you up because of what Jesus has done for you. Your purity in Christ's eyes is not because of anything you've done. It's all because of Christ giving himself. Why did he give himself? To redeem us and free us from sin, but also to purify us for himself. So now, and here's where this verse ends. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We've been saying about Titus all along. It's about belief and behavior. Words and works. And here again, we see it in this passage. And this can kind of be uh, almost a back end to what verse one is talking about. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then here in verse 14, we see 
people who are zealous for good works. And I struggled this week to say, what in the world does this have to do with this passage? Honestly, it might've been easier for me to preach if that phrase wasn't in there. I could have preached a, a passage highlighting salvation and the work of Christ, but then this phrase at the end, who are zealous for good works, I kept thinking, what does this have to do? How in the world is this all one sentence, verses 11 to 14? And then I realized that we get to live as a present reality of our future hope in Christ. This middle verse where it says that we're hoping for Christ's return. We're looking forward to what he's gonna do when he comes back and makes everything right again and his glory appears and it's no longer hidden to the world. Now we get to live as a present reality of that future hope. We can be zealous for good works now because we look forward to an eternity of good works in Christ. He will bring new creation once and for all, never to be undone, and we can live like the new creation now. It's the already not yet tension of our salvation in Christ. Christ has not yet perfected everything. He has not yet made the world new. He has not yet toppled over every evil and injustice in this world. Tears still flow. It's not yet finished, but we are already in him. We can already say Christ is enough like we will for all eternity. We can already live the good works that we'll be doing for all eternity. So when we choose to love our neighbor, we're walking in good works that don't make sense to this world, but are a reflection of our eternity in the future. So now you can walk in good works, not because you have the strength or the power to, but because of who you are in Jesus. If you don't believe in life beyond the grave, you will struggle to find meaning for good works in this life. Our ethics is grounded in our resurrection hope. And because we hope in the resurrection, we can bring that new creation, that resurrection life right now. When Jesus talks about, the New Testament talks about eternal life, it doesn't mean something that's gonna happen one day after you die. It means a certain quality of life that you as a believer possess now. You have eternal life now. And what Paul is saying in Titus 2.14 is Jesus has saved you so that you would live like you have eternal life now. Don't live like the world because that's not who you are anymore. You are in Jesus Christ. So in Titus 2.11-14, we see that we are saved by Christ, we are shaped for Christ, and we are serving in Christ. He is our identity. It's all about Jesus. I joke with Jay. He often texts me and says, hey, give me some insight on the sermon so I can choose some songs. And I will often joke and say, Jesus. But I really don't have another message. So it's kind of a joke and it's kind of serious. Because we're going to go to whatever passage in this book and we're going to make our way to Jesus. Because the point's not what you and I can do. The point's who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That our identity start to eternity is in Christ. And so as I was thinking about finishing the sermon this morning, I, I couldn't help but wonder, do you have life in Christ? Do you have life in Christ? I'm gonna ask us all to just pray for just a moment. 
as you consider Titus 2, 11 to 14, how is God prompting your heart to respond? If you don't know Jesus, I, I would like to, I'd like to speak to you for just a moment. Maybe you've been wrestling with the things of Christ. Maybe you've been wondering. Maybe you've been convicted of your sin. Maybe you have come to the end of yourself and you say, I'm tired of being restless. I'm tired of seeking a different kind of salvation in other kinds of places. I need the salvation that only Jesus offers. Here's what I would like for you to do. I would like for you to pray a prayer. And I'm gonna pray it and I would love for you to be able to repeat it after me. There's nothing wrong with praying somebody else's words. The church has done that for thousands of years. But here's an example of a sinner's prayer of someone who needs to step out of death into life through faith in Jesus. So if this is you this morning, just say this prayer. God, I know that I am a sinner separated from you. I know that I need your grace in Jesus. So I trust Jesus Christ alone to forgive me of my sins, make me new from the inside out, bring me into a loving relationship with you. Thank you for loving me, dying for me, and being raised from the dead so that I can have new life in you. Amen. Now, those words aren't magical, but they are an accurate representation of what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus, maybe for the very first time. So if you prayed that prayer and you need to pray that prayer, uh, I would love to talk to you. Pastor Al would love to talk to you after the service today. So please come and tell us so that we can walk with you and celebrate with you in baptism. But if you know Jesus this morning, I want you to consider how you're being shaped by Christ to serve him. How are you being shaped by Christ? What else are you being shaped by? But I pray that we could come underneath the shaping of Jesus to be trained by him for how to live like him. So I wanna pray for us and then we're gonna sing a very short song. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for coming, living, dying, and being raised from the dead so that we can have new life in you. You offer the salvation we need, whether or not it's the one we seek. But I pray that you would tune our hearts to seek your salvation, to seek you, to rest in you. Help us to submit to you so that you would shape us to be the kind of people you want us to be. In Jesus' name.